0: Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox
1: good afternoon i am Vina jones Cox, and this is real life real estate investing your nation's public radio source for all the latest news information tips and techniques about building financial independence by investing in real estate the smart way today is question and answer week here on real life real estate seems like a while since we've done one of those but uh it is the last wednesday of the month and the last wednesday of the month is always Q&A day, which means that whatever questions you have are what we're going to talk about today on Real Life Real Estate. You can get a hold of us if you're in the greater Cincinnati area by calling 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com that's A-S-K-V like in Victor E-N-A at gmail.com any questions you have today are of course fair game as long as they're about real estate investing speaking of real estate investing the real estate investors Association of Cincinnati meets next week uh, not 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 tomorrow but a week from tomorrow the general meeting is uh, Ask the Experts Night. So this is going to be a meeting where there are tables set up around the room, different experts on different topics like landlording, wholesaling, retailing, creative finance, working with agents, short sales, property management. We'll be sitting at those tables ready to answer your question. That's always a fun meeting because if you've got something that's been bothering you or something you've been meaning to ask... That's a great chance to get it answered. The early meeting is about estate planning. It's called the Hereafter. The uh, meeting is April 5th. The early meeting is at 6 o'clock. Main meeting at 7.30. All are welcome. You can go to CincinnatiREA.com for more information and location. Or call 859-292-7342. Again, it's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate Investing, 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. I'm going to answer some email questions that we got before the show came on. The first one is from Robert in Hudson, Ohio, whose question I believe uh, relates to our topic on mobile homes last week he says are mobile home parks subject to fair housing law and the answer is absolutely yes robert all forms of residential housing are subject to fair housing law including the provision of mobile home type housing so yes it's very important that we all be up to date on our fair housing law if you're not we have several podcasts on the topic at uh, our our iTunes page. If you go to iTunes and put in "real life real estate," you'll find that there's oh, I don't know, about a hundred shows up there, archived for your listening pleasure. Um, question here from let's see, Alicia in Indianapolis. She says, I have a lady who purchased her house in 2006 at the top of the market for $75,000. Now that the market has declined, it's only worth about sixty-five. and what she owes is right about what it's worth. She's an older lady who wants to move to a smaller house and rid herself of the burden of taking care of the house, but is unable to sell it right now without having to bring money to the table. She has great credit and has never missed any payments. She wants to sign the house over to me, and then rent it for a year or two while moving, so, uh, while waiting to. Oh, and then moves to someplace smaller. How does this process work? Do I need to go get approved for a loan, or what is the correct way of doing this? And Alicia, the question that I would ask back to you is: Why do you want to do this? Why do you want to buy a sixty-five thousand dollar house for sixty-five thousand dollars? I I don't see I don't see where the profit is in that for you. When she says she wants to sign it over to you. I assume that what she's saying is she wants to sign it over to you subject to the existing $65,000 loan. And depending on the details of that loan, for instance, is it a fixed rate loan? Or an adjustable rate loan and does it have a balloon and half a dozen other things I would say to you that taking over that loan might look as if it has some profit in it because the the loan payment might be a whole lot lower than what you could get for rent for that property but I cannot advise you in this market to even, even with a no money down deal where you're not going to bank to get a loan and you're not paying any costs on the closing to take over a property at 100% of what it's worth. A few reasons for that. Number one would be what if you have to sell it in the next year or two? You won't be able to sell it for a profit. Number two would be uh, also if there are any damages to the house that need to be fixed before you can re-rent it after she moves out. You're actually going to go negative on the equity. So the question of how the process works is, you know, you she deeds you the house and you start making the payments. That's how the process works. the The question of should you do this deal? I think the answer is. Probably not. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. The numbers here in the studio, if you're in the greater Cincinnati area, are 772 Toll free outside the greater Cincinnati area. You can call us at 877-772-9658 or just send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. 877-772-9658 to call us directly here in the studio and ask your real estate investing question. Or just send an email to askvena at gmail.com. Without your questions, there is no show. And no question is too simple or too complex here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. Uh, including a question from Devin in Miami, Florida, who says, I keep seeing all these ads for rent-to-own in va- in the Vegas area. No credit check, etc. Do you have any insight into these program? It seems to be too good to be true, which I always find to be a bad early indicator. Yeah, well... Um recognizing that things seem too good to be true is always a good thing. And you would be shocked at how many people, even folks who are studying real estate investing, do not recognize when things are too good to be true. However, Devin, a deeper understanding of what is happening here would make you understand that it is not too good to be true and that these programs are actually fairly common uh, what you're seeing here is a housing market, Las Vegas, that was absolutely crushed in the downturn, was left with hundreds, if not thousands, of new houses that could not be sold and or quickly went into foreclosure because they were sold for way more than they turned out to be worth after the subprime loans were pulled out from under everybody. And uh, folks are getting creative about how they're selling them. Uh, There there are bulk buyers out there who are purchasing those properties by the entire subdivision. And since they can't sell them and they don't especially want to be landlords, they are offering them to people who want to be homeowners on a rent-to-own deal. Now, I think what is triggering you to think that it's too good to be true is the no credit check part. Here's the thing. When you rent a property or rent-to-own a property... It's a pretty good guess that the person who's renting it does not have great credit, particularly when these properties are newer homes in more bread and butter type neighborhoods because many people who have great credit and want to buy a nice home in a nice area just go do it right now since interest rates are, what, 3.75% or something like that. So running a credit check is something that a lot of landlords don't do. What does happen, however, is they run employment checks, they run criminal checks, they run eviction checks, they run checks to make sure that you don't have uh, tons of judgments against you. And those are public record checks. Those aren't credit checks. So I'm sure they're being very honest and saying there's no credit check because they don't bother to pull your credit because they know it's not going to be great. What they want to know is, do you make enough money? to make the monthly payments because the worst thing that happens to them is if 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 you if you do make enough money, you've got good employment, you sign this contract, the worst thing that's going to happen to them is in 9 months you lose your job, you can't make your payments and they evict you. Cuz it's a rent to own. It's not a property for sale. The one thing that I will add and I add this with hesitation because A lot of people take the a lot of people out in the public take the fact that this happens a teeny tiny percentage of the time as absolute proof that that rent to own deals are not good deals. There are there have been in the past, and I'm not speaking to these folks in Vegas. I have no idea who they are. I have no idea what their business model is, but there have been folks in the past in various communities who have made it a habit to sell properties rent to own with extremely high upfront payments which are non-refundable those payments are non-refundable they they do typically uh reduce the price of the property when you buy it so if it's a hundred thousand dollar house and you put ten thousand down you only owe 90 when you buy it but uh some of these folks have been have been more looking for people who have a lot of money up front. And they don't care if they can make the monthly payment because they're just as happy if they, if the people get evicted in, um, in three months and they can, they can do it all over again. So is it too good to be true? No, <laughs> it happens all the time. Um, the, the credit, the no credit check thing would probably be fairly normal in this type of deal. And, uh, you do need to look more into what the terms are though of that option agreement. So thank you very much for your email, Devin. Um I got a question here that I had to call in professional help on because it is a fairly complicated tax question and one that I therefore uh, do not know how to answer. So. Uh, I sent a quick text to John Heyer, who is a a tax attorney and has been on the show here a couple of times, hoping that maybe he could help us out with this. Uh, John, are you there? I are here. Hi, John. Uh, I appreciate you being able to jump on, especially at this time of year (laughs) when things are very, very busy at your office. Uh, But we received a question here on Real Life Real Estate that I am in no way qualified to tackle. And here it is. This is from Eugene in Columbus he says my wife and i own several rental properties in our own name they are not in an llc or a trust is the best option to choose qualified joint venture on schedule e
0: wow <laughs> okay let's talk about that for a minute technically speaking if your husband and wife and you own a property jointly you're supposed to file a Form 1065, a partnership return, if you live in Ohio. And and what the deciding point is, do you live in a community property state or do you live in a not community property state? If you live in a community property state like California, then you're allowed to file as husband and wife on your Schedule E. If you live in Ohio or a similar state where they don't have community property, then technically your partners... And technically, and note the use of the word technically, because I'm going to give you another answer that's a lot more practical. Um, Technically, you're supposed to file a a 1065, and it's a more complicated return. It takes more effort. People like me charge more, and it also gives the IRS a lot more information. Um, Now, here's what I've done as a practical matter, and it's one way we save clients money. It's kind of like going 66 in a 65 zone. Technically, you're supposed to file a 1065, but the IRS has a rule that says if you were supposed to file a 1065 and you did not, they will not penalize you if you are a small business, A, which almost everybody that listens is because their their thresholds really huge, like $10 million or something. Um, if you're a small business and you reported the income somewhere, such as Schedule E. So I've had over the years literally dozens of calls with the IRS where they might send a letter out saying, hey, you didn't file a partnership return. You were supposed to. We call back and say hey, they reported the income on Schedule E, and the IRS says, oh, never mind then, as long as they're reporting the income. So the answer is, just report it on Schedule E, and I wouldn't check a box that says Qualified Joint Venture or anything like that. I would just report it directly on Schedule E, page one.
1: Wonderful. Now, Eugene has a second question. As a what is the meaning of life? <laughs> as a... As a passive income business, rental properties only, do we need to send out 1099s to our contractors that we have contracted to do work on our rental properties?
0: You know, it's up in the air somewhat, law on that. And my interpretation of it is, yes, you do. Um, In fact, you're going to notice on your Schedule E, the IRS has a new question this year. On all the entity returns and on your Schedule E and on your Schedule C, there is a trick-trap question, and it is this. Two questions, really. It's a: Were you required to send out 1099s? And the answer is, if you're paying someone through your business for services, $600 or more per year, and they're not a corporation, in other words, an Inc. and an LLC is not the same as an Inc. So you paid someone more than $600 through your business for services, you have to 1099 them. Now, the second question on the return says, if you ha- if you answered yes above. Did you 1099 them? Now note, if the answer is you were supposed to 1099 and you say no, or the answer is you were supposed to 1099, did you? And you say yes even though you didn't, that is civil fraud. So if you answer yes, we were supposed to 1099 and but we didn't do it, it's welcome to instant audit and the penalties now for failing to do 1099s have doubled. It's typically somewhere between two to 250 dollars per incident per 1099. If you say that you 1099 and you did not, that is civil fraud. The penalties are very high. It is not fun. That is a what, what the Congress critters call revenue generating and what the rest of us call a revenue trap, a speed trap, a trap for the unwary. Mm-hmm. So I would 1099, and, if, and the usual rule is, if in doubt, 1099, because they're looking to make money by catching people who didn't do it, and we are seeing
1: it. All right. Uh, that is John Heyer from realestatetaxlaw.com. John, thanks so much for uh, jumping in and saving me on question no and answer and day, I'll to day to day.
0: you May 1st after I drink for about two weeks.
1: Okay. <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, so there you go, Eugene, and an answer from an actual expert. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're doing question and answer day to day which means you can call in with your questions at 877-772-9658, or you can email them to askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's the last Wednesday of the month, and that is question and answer week, kind of an open mic day here on Real Life Real Estate. You can call with your questions at 877-772-9658, or you can send us an email at askvena at gmail.com. And there are no stupid questions. Well, there are, but I won't even tell you if they're stupid. So you you don't have to worry about it. If you think your question's stupid, call anyway. 877-772-9658 or gmail dot com. Another question from Robert in Hudson, Ohio. He says, I recently made a bid on an REO, that's a bank-owned property, for a single family home in garfield heights after the bank accepted my offer it presented to me a fourteen page addendum to the purchase contract that included a number of unreasonable requests among them were the following. I had to inform the bank each time I wanted to inspect the property. I had to agree to pay for all dewinterizing and re including having to pay to reconnect and disconnect all utilities and allow the bank to approve the pest company that I wanted to use to perform a pest inspection and complete any repairs from pest damage. My questions to you are, have you ever seen these types of requirements and addendums to purchase contracts? Are they negotiable? Ultimately, I refused to comply with the requirements and withdrew my offer. Robert, I had like 19 things to say about this. First thing is, the language that we use when we're talking about banks accepting offers and then presenting us with addendums is actually not correct language. When the bank says yes to your price, but then sends you a 14-page addendum totally changing the terms of the contract, they have not accepted your offer. They have countered your offer. Until you accept that that counter by signing that addendum, you aren't in contract. You don't even have to withdraw your offer because you don't have a, an accepted offer on the table. So we we need to train ourselves to speak about this accurately, which is to say, the bank accepted the price but countered the terms on the property. And I'm not I'm not saying that to to dogpile on you, Robert. Uh, I'm saying that because pe- people seem to think often that once the bank has accepted the price, that they have to sign these heinous addendums, and they do not have to sign the heinous addendums if they don't agree with the terms of them. Have I seen these types of requirements in addendums to purchase contracts? These and more. Every bank, or let me say every institutional seller of real estate has a different addendum with similar heinous things, but some have favorites and that others don't use. Um, what you're telling me here is is not unusual. Uh the way that most full-time investors will deal with this business of, if you want the utilities on, you have to put them on in your name, and then you have to have the plumbing reconnected because we disconnected to winterize it, and then you have to pay to disconnect it again, and so on, is they simply don't do that. They assume and work into their offer price that the plumbing is cracked throughout the house and will have to be totally replaced they assume that the furnace even though it has a sticker on it this is two years old is not going to work when they turn the utilities on they in other words assume a higher level of repair costs than they generally would with a property that all the power was on which results in a lower offer to the bank. Which, if they then accept it, and you find out the plumbing's not broken and the furnace does come on, is a pleasant surprise for you and more money in your pocket. The more, the more sort of awful things in some of these uh, bank contracts are things like the $150 a day penalty for every day after the scheduled closing date that you fail to close. I have had banks that the failure to close has been because their title company forgot to ask for a piece of information that they thought that they needed until 18 hours before the closing. And when we then produced it, they said, well, we can't close tomorrow now because we've got to process this. So it'll be three days, and and, and, and you're now expected to pay $450 in penalties because we, the title company for the bank, which the bank chose, are delaying the closing. Um, also, I have had banks... De- delay the closing on their side because they could not find clear title to their own property for no exaggeration, nine months after the scheduled closing date. Do I get the $150 a day when they don't close? No, I do not. So yes, these contracts are extraordinarily one-sided. When you truly read through them, they are often internally contradictory. They will, say, they will say one thing in one clause that is directly contradicted by something in a different clause. And no, they are not negotiable. In my experience, if you try to change the contract, you try and change the addendum, you, 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 it, it's as if you had thrown a Molotov cocktail into Bank of America for the, for the reaction you get you would act like you had physically tried to harm the employees of bank of america and what is really happening there i think and this is this is a combination of of me guessing and me talking to the agents who deal with the banks is that somebody up at corporate headquarters has created that addendum some attorney has created that addendum and of course who the person you're negotiating with is not really at the bank He is the asset manager, an independent company that the bank hired, through the real estate agent that the asset manager hired, and neither one of them has any authority to agree to any changes to that, and they can't kick it back up to North Dakota to get changes made because, well, they just just can't do that. So trying to change the terms of that contract, you have to remember who it is you're really negotiating with, and that is not the seller himself, but probably... An asset manager that the seller has hired. So, yeah, basically what it comes down to is if you don't like the looks of the addendum, don't sign it. But do expect that they are going to be just full of things that seem incredibly unfair, incredibly one sided, incredibly impractical. Every time I read one of these addenda, I think to myself, do they really want to sell these properties or don't they? Because most people. Particularly, someone like a like a home buyer, as opposed to a rehabber investor, are going to look at those at, at, at those addendums, addenda, and say, "There's no way I'm signing this. This is this is just so terrible. It's it's ridiculous. I can't even believe they put this in front of me." So um, you probably did the right thing by withdrawing it. the uh, The other thing to, that you could have done would have been to add up what all the stuff you couldn't test was going to cost to to uh, replace. And resubmit the offer with those included in the rehab price. Uh, you're listening to Question and Answer Week. It's the last Wednesday of the month. And therefore, <laughs> all I'm doing today is answering questions from listeners. You can call in at 877 729 Or you can email askvina at gmail.com is the... Email address. Uh, Another question here via email. This one is from Ron in Reserve, Louisiana. He says, Please help me find some hard money lenders. We're in New Orleans. You mentioned on one of your shows that you could email information on finding hard money lenders. Um, I don't recall that specific show, Ron. Uh, and I cannot recommend hard money lenders on the air because, uh, well, first of all, I actually don't specifically know the names of any of them who are loaning in the New Orleans area because that business has become very regional in the last 10 years or so. Uh, but I can give you some information on how to find a hard money lender in your area. And that would be uh, simply Google investment loans, hard money loans, and um Private loans, plus New Orleans, and I—I I promise you that you will see a number of different companies pop up who at least uh, say that they will do hard money loans. Also, go to your local real estate association. Uh, your local real estate association, I know, has a few hard money lenders in it. I know that for a fact. Whether they make it public, whether they you know stand up in front of the room and say I've got hard money, is another matter. But if you ask around folks will be able to direct you to folks who make hard money loans. Uh, Remember, though, that your deal has to fit certain criteria. You're going to get a relatively low loan to value from a hard money lender. You are still going to have to qualify in terms of credit, but also of experience. So um, hard money loans are not the sign here, and we'll give you some money types of loans in general that they were a few years ago. There are a couple of different types of hard money lenders out there. And one is real estate investor people who do hard money loans. And they actually do look more at they still look more at the security. In other words, they look more at the property. And they say, if I make this loan, and Ron doesn't pay it, am I going to be happy or sad to have to take this house back? And if the answer is I'm going to be happy, they'll do the loan. The more institutional type hard money lenders, the ones who that's what they do for their entire business and their their goal is really to not ever have to take back a property, are going to be much more strict about your credit, your experience, and so on. So I hope that helps you out there, Ron. It's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate, seven seven two nine six five eight 9658 in the greater Cincinnati area, 877 877- Seven seven two nine six five eight. if you are listening to us online you can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com a question from david in dallas he says could you recommend a site for comparable properties when a person does not have mls access david again that word recommend is um let me let me let me do a brief explanation here again because i I actually got an email today from someone saying, "Can I be a guest on your podcast? It's not a podcast it's not a webinar. I know you listen to it online, but it's because w m k v f m is broadcasting it online, not because it's an online radio show. If you were in Cincinnati, you could turn on your radio and you would actually hear us coming across the radio waves so The other problem is, it is public radio, as in listener supported, as in we don't get on here and do sales pitches, which is why you enjoy the show so much. I get emails and Facebook posts all the time saying, your web classes are so great, you never sell anything, yet they're not web classes, (laughs) that's why. So long explanation for, I cannot recommend a site, but David, I will tell you this, there are a handful of services that you can pay for that will will show you comparable properties okay they will they will uh, they they actually take the public record and put it in the database and make it searchable by radius and so on those systems the 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 really good ones do cost money the really useful ones that give you all the data you want and allow you to sort in all kinds of different ways. Cost money, and uh, the the money they cost is anywhere from you know sixty or seventy bucks a month up to a hundred or two hundred dollars a month, depending on what service you are looking for. There are, as you are probably aware, many free online house valuing services. The results that I have gotten from those in terms of really finding a value to a property have not been good. The, they uh, they tend to throw at you an estimate of the value of the property. You enter the address, and then it'll say, oh, well, we think this property's worth $145,000. And then when you look at the at the sale prices, when you dig down a little further into the data and you look at the sales prices of the properties around it, they're 60 and 70. And you say, well, wh- wh- why am I being told 145 on this? Who knows what their math is? For why your property is worth 45 when everything around it is sold for 70. It's uh, uh, probably based on previous sales or on uh, courthouse data. Now, the way in which you can use those free sites, and this is important, it takes more work, okay, is don't look at the estimate, look at the actual sales of properties in the immediate area. Look at the number of rooms, look at the number of bedrooms. If the information is available, look at who the buyer was and who the seller was, because that's important. Drive around and look at those properties and see if they are, in fact, similar to the one that you're looking for. Because the only really real way to find comps is look for sold data. And many of those free sites will give you sold data But the idea that you're going to be able to to go on it, it's going to just be able to pop up a number and say your property's worth this much. It just it doesn't work that way. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing question and answer week. 877-772-9658 is our number here in the studio. You can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vena Jones-Cox. It is question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. So we've got about 10 minutes left in the show. So if you have a question that's been, I don't know, burning a hole in your brain, you can call me right now at 877-772-9658. Or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. That's a s k. V E N A at gmail.com question from Alan in Delaware, Ohio. He says, I'm looking to buy a property. When I called the tax auditor, he said that there's $2,000 in past due taxes and that the treasurer is going to take that property if they are not paid. When I buy this property, am I expected to pay them? The answer Alan is that depends. If you are buying from a typical seller, and that would include a typical bank seller, those will be paid by the seller from his proceeds at the time at which you buy them. There are certain types of seller who commonly sell properties via quitclaim deeds. And the deal is whatever you're offering, you're offering that plus the amount of the back taxes, because you are expected to pay the back taxes as well. So just be careful to look at the purchase contract. The purchase contract will outline whether the back taxes and any other liens are going to be paid off at the closing by the seller or are expected to be taken over by you. Uh, going back to email, because that seems to be all we are getting today. Uh, is emails this is an article that someone sent me that i will read over a little bit later Um, this one is from david in indianapolis i seem to have a big indianapolis listenership today he says how do we buy bank-owned properties and make them easier to flip without bank-mandated holding periods uh when you say flip david do you mean wholesale or do you mean retail because you've got two two issues coming from two potentially different places depending on whether you are saying make it easier for, to wholesale them or make it easier to retail them. Now, the fact that you said bank mandated holding periods and the fact that you said buy REOs makes me think that you're talking about, I want to buy it, I want to fix it up, I want to sell it. And the bank is saying to me, I cannot sell it within some certain period of time after I have purchased it. And that is much more true on short sales than it is on REOs. The only uh, li- selling lender that I know is consistently putting into their contracts that you cannot sell it within a certain period of time for more than a certain profit is Fannie Mae, and that certain period of time is 90 days, and the certain profit is a 120 percent of whatever you paid for it, not what you have in it. So they don't even count in any repairs that you did to it. Uh, realistically, are you are you gonna are you gonna buy a property cheap? get it completely fixed up, and get it sold, I mean, like closed, in 90 days. Most people can't do that. They might be able to get it fixed up in six weeks, and then they can put it on the market, but then their buyer's going to go get a loan, so that's going to take 45 days. And by the time all that happens, the 90-day period has passed. Um, the other thing that you may be thinking of is that on the on the other side of the transaction, where the, the buyer is going to the bank to get his loan, that there are some requirements with some lenders as to how long you, David, have owned the property before this buyer here can buy it. And up until... I guess it's been two years ago now. Uh, FHA had a strict restriction that said it had to be 180 days unless you could get two different appraisals showing the increase in value, in which case 90 days was the rule. Uh, They actually suspended, FHA suspended that rule uh, not last spring, but the spring before, and then resuspended it last spring in an effort, so they said, to stimulate the housing market, which was a good. Fought by HUD um, Fannie Mae still has some holding requirements I, I i I need to get more up to date on the on what those are at the moment uh, I think that it is uh it's six months for a new buyer to buy your property if they are Fannie Mae buyers but really most folks that I know that are retailing properties are focusing on those first time home buyers who are getting fHA loans anyway so I hope having said all that that you did in fact mean what is the uh uh what is the way to uh get around the holding periods on properties that you are going to retail Okay, folks, I am down to my last couple of questions here, and we still have about 10 minutes left in the show. So if you have any questions, please send them to askvina at gmail.com or give us a quick call at 877-772-9658. Here's a question from Marcus in central New Jersey saying, is it possible to utilize an IRA account to buy tax certificates? I'm considering moving my 401k funds to an IRA. It's only a little bit over 20,000. But I was thinking I could increase my return by using a strategy like this, considering it's not enough to invest in properties. That's so funny that you said 20,000 isn't enough to invest in properties, Marcus, because you could buy like 20,000 properties in Cincinnati for that much money. I'm being sarcastic just in case you folks didn't didn't know that. But yeah, I mean, there's there's parts of the country where you can absolutely buy properties for $20,000. The uh, restriction, of course, in the IRA is that the IRA then has to have the money to do any needed repairs, do any needed management, and so on. You can't mix your own money with your IRA's money. That makes the technical answer to your question, yes, you can use your IRA funds to invest in tax certificates. However... The thing that you need, and it it has to be a self-directed IRA and and any truly self-directed one, like where they'll let you invest in real estate. But at the same time, you have to think about this. One possible outcome of the tax certificate is that the, the person who owes the money pays it and pays it with interest. The other possibility is they don't pay it and you have to foreclose on the property. And when I say you, I mean your IRA has to foreclose on the property. And then you have to um, be able to have the funds to deal with what then needs to be done to the property. So if you end up acquiring that property in your IRA, you got the same issue of if you plan to fix it up, the IRA has to have the money to do that, and so on. So yes, you can buy tax certificates in your self-directed IRA. Just think it all the way through, okay? Uh, We're going to go to line one and talk to Connie in Tennessee. Connie, welcome to Life Real Estate.
2: Hi Vina, thanks so much.
1: I'm glad to have you on, Connie. Thank
2: you. I've got a question. You just mentioned about the FHA and 90-day seasoning.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Has that been suspended? Is it currently suspended or are we in a time where FHA wants to see a 90-day seasoning?
1: It 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 is suspended. It's up for renewal really soon. It's, it's gotta be in the next, it's gotta be in the next couple of weeks that, that the, uh, the suspension would be up for renewal. Um, my hope is that they will do it again because they did it last year. And uh-huh. I mean, it really is a smart thing. If you want, if you want to stimulate the housing market, don't punish investors who are good at what they do and can therefore renovate a house. And and get it on the market and sold within 90 days. That's a good thing for everybody. It's a good thing for the buyer. It's well, that's a good exactly thing the... where we are. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, we bought a house the end of December at an auction, and we've renovated it. We put it on the market several weeks ago and got an offer on it the first day that the other agent said that we wouldn't be able to sign the paperwork we had to date the paperwork for March 30th because that was the 90 days and I said I don't think that that's in effect right now and she said no I'm pretty sure it is and so we dated all of the paperwork on March for March 30th but I you know I'm kind of kicking myself for not checking into that well
1: I just ran a quick search on this and it says that the department of the housing and urban development announced friday january twenty eighth, 2011 it will extend the suspension of the rule that prevents fha from ensuring a home loan that is being used to purchase a home less than 90 days after less than 90 days by the seller okay so all
2: right very good <laughs> yeah so i'm i'm <laughs> Thank you. thinking
1: that it's, it's been extended oh wait a minute it says here it's been extended to December of 2011 so I need to, to google something more updated but the um mm, and I shouldn't be trying to read while I'm on the radio because that makes for a really boring Let's show How- <laughs> however uh here's one that says it's extended through 123112. Uh, 12 so okay yeah somebody was working off of old information when they told you that well, I appreciate your help. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. I for just your- found
2: your show, um, and I'm glad you posted on Facebook because that's how I found you.
1: Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Scotty. appreciate you listening. And uh, if you would like to become a Facebook fan of Real Life Real Estate so that you can find the show every week, you can just go to realliferealestateradio.com, and that'll take you straight to our Facebook page if you then click the little like button you'll uh you'll just see it come up in your feed every week here's the topic here's the guest here's the number to ask questions the email to ask questions and we also post other stuff up there about upcoming events and properties and things like that so it's a good thing to do uh to be a facebook fan of real life real estate investing and (laughs) while you're at it fan up wmkv too because it's just sort of you know sad that we've got like six thousand fans of real life real estate (laughs) and wmkv has a slightly lesser number it's like it's like um the difference between wmkv and real life real estate is the same as the difference between real life real estate and bacon (laughs) so (laughs) so yes um We're about to the end of our time here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. Thanks so much to all the folks who made it a good show by asking some great questions. We will be back next week to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.